Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. February, and in honor of Black History Month, I wanted to talk about something I love, but it's sometimes dismissed as not worthy of attention, and that's black exploitation. You've been corporatized, blackularized, and superflied. You've been macked, hammered, slaughtered, and shafted. And now we're going to turn you on to some brand new jive. You're going to be glorified, unified, and filled with pride when you see five on the black hand side. The godfather of Harlem is doing it again. In Black Caesar, he ate up the town. Now he's hungry for more. More action. More excitement. More everything. Fred Williamson is back, and there's gonna be hell up in Harlem. Hey, all you jive hustlers, you stone foxes, you mean dudes, watch out, cause Slaughter's back in town. During its heyday in the 1970s, these films were designed for an urban black audience, but ended up reaching far beyond. To discuss black exploitation with me, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, David Walker. Your credits are so diverse and numerous, I'm going to let you decide what you'd like to highlight right now. So tell me, what are you working on right now of your many projects? What am I not working on, I guess? (laughs) This has been a crazy month for me. I'm writing a, a comic book, a Shaft comic book, based on the iconic character Shaft from the 1970s, which was a, uh, there was a series of books by Ernest Tidyman, which is a film starring Roundtree. Who's the black private dick that does a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. Back in 2014, I helped bring that character back, first in the form of a comic book series, and then as a novel, which just came out this month, and the novel just came out. And then a sequel to the comic book came out. So I have two Shaft projects simultaneously on the stands, which is just kind of odd. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm writing for Marvel Comics right now. I'm writing a book called Power Man and Iron Fist, which was in the late 70s through the mid 80s, was a, a very popular series. The character Power Man, a lot of people know him now by his real name, which was Luke Cage who is a co-star on the hit Netflix series, Jessica Jones. Luke Cage is getting his own series on Netflix sometime later this year. Um, And he's getting his own comic again with his former partner now. They've reunited. They've gotten the band back together. So it's Power Man and Iron Fist, (laughs) Iron Fist being a kung fu superhero. So so like three of the bigger things that I've got going on right now and on top of that, I'm an adjunct college professor, too, which is really weird to talk about because that's that's new. That's like that just entered into my my realm of existence very recently. Well, and it also seems now that you are getting a lot more professors being able to teach pop culture related classes than there were maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, there are. And it's and it's interesting to me because, you know, I've been writing about pop culture and the intersection of of pop culture with, say, racial ideology, primarily racial ideology, for more than 20 years. And so now it's it's sort of interesting because I'm constantly getting asked to come do a guest lecture at, at this school or that school. And 
you know, now I'm actually teaching them. I'm teaching writing, which is, that's what I do. But going way back, this, this sort of exploration of, of the intersection between pop culture and race has always fascinated me. It's fascinated me my whole life and black exploitation more than anything else. You know, there's other things that I'm, I, I love Kung Fu movies, especially Kung Fu movies from the 70s out of Hong Kong. And the European Westerns that came out in the 60s and early 70s are also fascinating to me. A lot of times they they represent these sort of weird cross-cultural mashups, if you will. And there's always more going on beneath the surface with a lot of these things. They tend to be, they historically, they, they tended to be dismissed. It's just now I think some people are able to look at some of these things and go, okay, wait a sec. There's a lot going on here, uh, you know. The, the director of this particular movie, he was a communist, and clearly there's a little bit of Marxist uh, underpinnings to to the story that's going on. So, for me, it's fun pointing that out in a way that's not like I'll get in trouble for saying this, but that boring academic speak. <laughs> it's it's talking about it in ways that that the average person on the street can be like, oh wow, this is really cool. Well, and it seems so much more accessible. It should be accessible. Yes, that's the key. <laughs> academia doesn't necessarily want it to be accessible. As someone who works in academia now, you know, I, I have to be careful not to, you know, bite the hand that feeds me. But, but they only feed me scraps, so I can, I, I can be pretty critical. I happen to think that, that knowledge and information should, should be available to everybody. And, and part of that entails, uh, Malcolm X once said, um, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, you know, in the moments that we have, let's speak to the people of Earth in a language they can easily understand, which means you don't necessarily drop words like diaspora or rubric or pedagogy in your, you know, in your everyday conversation when you're talking to people. You, you talk to them, in, in, again, in vernacular that's easy to understand and easy to relate to, that, that invites dialogue as opposed to you talking at a person. So the fact that you are working on these Shaft novels and comics makes it even more appropriate that I talk to you about black exploitation during this Black History Month. For people who may not be familiar with this terminology or the films that came out during this period, how would you define black exploitation? What kind of criteria does a film need to meet to qualify to be part of this group? Therein lies the age-old question. So I, I, the answer that I formulated over, over the years it's a two-part. One is it, it has to be very specific to an, to a, an era, and that era is, is measured from 1970 to 1979. There's a very clear delineation. Anything that comes before 1970, we would have to call it pre-black exploitation, and anything that comes after 79, we'd have to call it post-black exploitation. So that's specific in, in that it's an era. Beyond the era, if you want to talk about it as a genre or something like that, I, I don't talk about it as a genre so much as I talk about it as, as a designated market. And by that, I mean films that were produced and marketed primarily to a black audience. When, when people talk about black exploitation films, they often, most often, they're talking about action films or, or, or crime dramas, that sort of thing, because that was what the vast majority of them were. But there were also comedies, there were also horror films, there were, there were even documentaries. There's all kinds of things that, that you could include in that. Um, and if you really wanted to get broad, you could include 
television shows, or you could include aspects of a television show. Like, as an example, the, the TV show Starsky and Hutch, there was the character Huggy Bear that Antonio Fargus played so well and so memorably. And, and, I, and I think, I theorize that, that that character is a direct result of what black exploitation did. So we saw a lot of that, again, like on television shows, you'd see a black guest star pop up in a role that 10 years earlier, you were never going to see someone in that kind of role. And then 10 years later, those sort of roles went away. It was a very complex sort of artistic movement that started out with very commercial, very capitalistic goals in mind. But isn't that what most pop culture, pop art is? Did these films come through the mainstream studios? How did, how were they getting financed and how were they being made? It was a combination of factors. A lot of them were independently produced. Someone would go out and they would, they would, they would raise money. Some of that money came from questionable sources, people looking to launder or whatever, illicit drug money or whatever, mafia money. But the vast majority of them were distributed by legitimate distributors at the time. AIP, American International Pictures, was still sort of the reigning distributor of B-movies that played at either drive-ins or sort of inner-city theaters. So AIP released movies like, like most of the Pam Greer movies, Foxy Brown Coffee, Friday Foster. Never fear, Pam Greer is here. A black goddess come to Earth. Pam Greer is Friday Foster, and she's running with a heavy crowd. Yafet Kodo, Eartha Kitt, Godfrey Cambridge, Jim Backus, Almas Rasulala, Ted Lange, and Scatman Crothers in Friday Foster. When some big money dudes in the capital got too hungry for power, Friday made their plans turn sour. Happy New Year, boss. She's a super sister who's gonna hit D.C. like a beautiful stick of TNT. Look out! When this fox shakes her tail, half of Washington may end up in jail. God have mercy! Her name is Friday, but you can dig her any day of the week. Pam Greer is Friday Foster. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. A lot of the Fred Williamson movies, Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem, and, and some of the more classic films of, of the black exploitation era came out through AIP. But, but pretty much every major distributor had black exploitation titles. Usually what they did was they picked up these films somewhere along the lines in terms of distribution. So most of them weren't necessarily directly financed by the studios. They were independently financed and then picked up, which is, is still a pretty common practice, although it's not as common now in the days of where movies cost $250 million to produce. But, you know, you take a movie like, say, Superfly, because Superfly costs less than a million dollars to produce. It was financed by, um, you know, independent investors. Most of them came from within the black community and then picked up by Warner Brothers which ended up making something like 20 or $30 million at the box office, which in 1972, like $20 million, $30 million, it was a ton of money. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the MO of a lot of these movies was they were, they were really inexpensive to produce. They were picked up by the distribution companies and then released in very targeted 
in a, in a very targeted distribution pattern, which happened to coincide with a shift that was going on in terms of population centers in the, in the U.S. It was a time when we were at the tail end of the, the migration of people from the cities out to the suburbs. This was during the birth of the suburbs. But yet most movie theaters still existed within the city proper. And what we think of as movie theaters now, which tend to be these giant megaplexes, you know, 10 screens and 12 screens, none of those existed yet. If you lived in Chicago, the movie theaters were either in Chicago or they were drive-ins that were more out in the suburbs. And, and so these particular films played into the fact that the entire population demographic of major metropolitan areas had shifted considerably post-World War II. And many of these films were very successful. I mean, that's part of... I mean, I don't, I don't know if people remember that, but I, they were a lot of... They were finally tapping into an audience that really wanted these products. Yeah, we were having just... I was just having a conversation with some guys about this last two, three weeks ago, and it was kind of funny because they didn't... They didn't believe me, but I was able to pull it up <laughs> online, was that there was, a, there was a time when The Godfather was the number one movie in the theaters in the U.S., and then Superfly came and, and bumped Godfather out of the number one spot, where Superfly was outgrossing Godfather in, in movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing to keep in mind is, like, nowadays when a movie comes out, you know, a movie like Star Wars The Force Awakens comes out, and it opens on 4,000 screens, literally, Know, three, four thousand screens. But in the 1970s, a movie like The Godfather would come out and it might only open on 10 screens. And those 10 screens would be, you know, five screens in New York City and then five screens in, in Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area. And then over the course of the next three or four months, it would gradually roll out to the rest of the country. And, mm-hmm. and, a, and a movie's theatrical release may take months as opposed to it being dumped in one weekend. And, um, but in terms of the black exploitation movies, if you, if you look at the charts in whether it's Variety or Hollywood Reporter, from 1971 to 1974, you're going to see that the, the top 100 films really, there's, I won't say dominated, but there's, within the top 100, there's always a minimum of 10 to 15 black exploitation films in the top grossing films between 1970, 71, 72-ish, but all, clearly all the way to 74. Those numbers start to taper off around 75, 76, and by 77, they're not dominating like they used to be. But, like, yeah, if you look at 72, 73, you'd be amazed at what you would see. I, I think I did a count where, like, 30 of the top 100 films in one given week were, were what you would consider black exploitation movies. Okay, you're, you're talking about this at a time when we have black actors threatening to boycott the Academy Awards because there are no black actors nominated. The pool of films that voters had to choose from in terms of films that featured black stories was pretty small. Uh, I mean, the contrast seems... I mean. I mean, I understand that those films were not what you would necessarily call A-list kind of movies that were coming out, but they were a lot of films. I mean, I know that when I was growing up, I mean, I could name five or ten 
black actors and celebrities from movies easily. And now it seems almost harder to do. It seems almost counterintuitive. Well, what happened is, is, is things shifted considerably uh, in terms of the way Hollywood does business and in, in terms of the way people go to the movies and, and, and in the way movies were presented. So again, you know, by the 1980s, you had, 1970, you didn't have a ton of, of multiplex screens mm-hmm. throughout the suburbs. You know, the, the, the indoor shopping mall was still kind of a thing of the future. But by 1985, it was, it was very real. Conversely, the drive-in was something that was still very real and viable in the 1970s, but it was dying off. And home video was practically non-existent in the 70s, but by the mid to late 80s, it was, was dominant. And so all these things factor into to how movies changed in, in not just any one regard, but in the, in the entire spectrum mm-hmm. of what, what the motion picture industry is all about. And, you know, and, and I, I always tell people, if you, you look at a movie like Jaws, the two biggest movies of the 70s in terms of finance, financial success were Jaws and Star Wars. And both of those movies made money in ways that no movie had ever made money before. Mm-hmm. But also they, they catered to, an, to such a wide audience and in such a way what black exploitation was was essentially what we would call, uh, now we would call it like, like niche marketing, niche marketing. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing about niche marketing comes in handy when the market is kind of screwy and nobody knows how to make money off of everyone. But once you figure out a way to make money off of everyone, once you have a movie that everybody goes to, Star Wars being a prime example, once you have a movie that every single person is going to go see, you no longer need to make movies for, um, now they call them quadrants. Um, but, you know, another term is demographics, right? Everybody mm-hmm. wants to see Star Wars. So now we don't need to see necessarily movies specifically with a female lead or specifically with a black lead because Star Wars gave us that, right? <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's just kind of weird. It's, it's, you have to understand how the motion picture industry works and you have to understand that the motion picture industry does not exist to serve the best interests of the audience or to make <laughs> the audience feel good. It exists to make money off the audience. And the most expedient way they can do it, they will do it. And, and if that means combining aspects of, of former niche markets or niche genres into one film, they're going to do it. Now, these films featured a lot of times all black casts, sometimes had black directors and writers, not always. Why do you think these films divide audiences today? I mean, because they do sometimes get dismissed. I know that, you know, we had a a proposed screening once over here at a college campus and it was rejected. They said that they wouldn't screen Zombies of Sugar Hill because they had concerns about it. So what do you think divides people and and makes them not appreciate what some of these black exploitation films did? Well, I think a lot of it is is the term, first off, the term black exploitation or black exploitation certainly has a negative connotation to it. It doesn't sound that <laughs> inviting, I think. But I also think that, that people like misunderstand those movies. Do a, a, a 
film series here once a year in February at a local theater. We program some movies. And a few years back, we decided we wanted to show across 110th Street, which is considered a black exploitation film. It was directed by a white guy, but it stars a predominantly black cast. And we had a packed audience. Most of them had never seen it before. And afterwards, you know, we were talking and people were like, wow, that's one of the best crime films of the 1970s. And people were, were talking about it on par with a movie like The French Connection or Serpico or something like that. And I happen to think Across Under 10th Street is one of the best crime films of the 70s. Today, they took our bank in Harlem for over $300,000. Wow. We have to teach them our lesson. He's a cute, isn't he? Ain't he a cute? But not everybody knows that. Where they go, oh yeah, that's a black exploitation movie, right? And, and, and the conversation just kind of ends there. And so I think there's a lot of it's misunderstanding. Like, I'm actually doing research for a new book that I'm going to put out on black exploitation films, which is it's going to be very different than a lot of other books because in a lot of ways it's sort of a personal, personal memoir. It's a personal memoir mixed with the sort of historical overview of these films. And, and part of what I've been doing is I've been collecting as many old reviews as I can find from like the New York Times and LA Times and Variety and Hollywood Reporter. And time and time again, it's like, Oh, yeah, like the people that were reviewing these movies, these are like 60 and 70 year old white people (laughs) who've been writing about film since Gone with the Wind came out. They had no idea what to make of these movies. It's it's the same thing that happened in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s with the emergence of hip hop. And like most music critics didn't know how to write about hip hop because they didn't understand it. And then you had the emergence of of a writer like Nelson George or Greg Tate, like these voices who came up from the ranks of, of the same culture that that music spoke to and like made sure that, that it was written about in a way that it was, that the music itself was taken as seriously as any other form of music, whether it was rock or jazz or anything else like that. Unfortunately, black exploitation never had that. Never really had that serious critic who was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, let's talk about like all of these movies for what they are or what they could be," as opposed to going, you know, again, not to knock Vincent Canby, um, but you know, Vincent Canby or Roger or uh, I can't think of the Roger whatever his name was who was writing for the New York Times at the time. Most of them didn't get these films. It's interesting because I, I saw it to a certain extent with some of the film criticism of a movie like Straight Out of Compton. Not as much so because I think most film criticism is is, is a truly lost art form. Um, mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people didn't even understand what Straight Out of Compton really was, or or why that Straight Out of Compton is in and of itself a black exploitation movie, which. People will be like, no, it wasn't. And it's like, yeah, no, I, I, I could build the case in like three sentences. I could build the case for why every Denzel Washington movie that's ever come out has been a black exploitation movie. Why every Will Smith movie, why Eddie Murphy movie, every single Eddie Murphy movie has been a black exploitation movie. Because, because even though we call it something different, 
it still is what it is. And what is that thing? If you if you had to explain to somebody who says like, oh, you know, those are A-list Hollywood actors. How can you possibly call that a black exploitation film? What is it that you see in those films that is making them? Well, it's, them? it comes down to the primary thing that it's, it, it is a, uh, these are movies that are in one capacity or another are being made and marketed to appeal to a black audience. Now, when you get an actor like Denzel Washington or Will Smith, they're amongst the most popular actors in the world right now. And so it's, the movies are meant to have more of a universal appeal, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that they know that if they put Denzel in a movie, you know, a Denzel movie is going to make more than, say, if they put Steven Seagal in the same movie. You know, I mean... At its bare essence, black exploitation was taking this concept of, of what black folks are or what the black experience in America is, putting it up on screen and attempting to make money off of it. Exploitation is what we do with every single product. Every, 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 anything that we exchange money for is, is an exploitable commodity. Plain and simple as that. We just don't call it that all of the time. And so that's why it's, it's still the same thing. And a lot of times, some of the movies we look at, like, say, Denzel's movie American Gangster, which came out a few years back that, that Ridley Scott directed, it was like the difference between that and, say, Black Caesar from 1973 with, with, um, with, with Fred Williamson, directed by Larry Cohen, the big difference between those two movies, honestly was about $100 million. Mm -hmm. Black Caesar cost about $100,000, whereas American Gangster cost a minimum of $40 million because Denzel got paid $40 million for that movie. So we know mm -hmm. it actually cost at least sixty to $70 million. That was the biggest difference. If, if, if all they'd had was $100,000 to make American Gangster, they could not have made a movie that was better than Black Caesar. Black Caesar is a great movie. A king of crime is born. A mob boss who started in the streets, ready to do anything for a payoff, no matter what it cost. What seemed significant to me about those films was that you had black char characters driving the plot. They were the ones that were moving it forward, and it wasn't just black characters reacting to what white characters were doing. What do you see as being important about these films as kind of a block of films? Yeah, there, there's, there's a type of representation that we saw in these films that we don't see as often anymore. And, and part of that is, it's like, okay, so a great example would be the early films of Eddie Murphy, where Eddie Murphy was in a movie like, say, Beverly Hills Cop or Trading Places, where he was... He was, he was maybe the only black character that existed, and he was sort of dropped into this all-white world with, without any other context of, of a black existence or a black reality. Now, that happened in some of the 70s movies, too, but, you know, you take a movie like, say, Truck Turner with Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes is Truck Turner, the last of the bounty hunters. You gonna bring him out or do we have to go in and get him? <laughs> Pam Greer is Foxy Brown, the meanest chick in town. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. When they get it on, the action takes off. 
started out originally was being developed as a as a as a movie for a, a white actor, and then it went through some changes, and they brought in Isaac Hayes. But that movie and those characters is, exist in a world where Isaac Hayes isn't the only black character in the movie, and where he's interacting and he's moving through a world where there's other black folks, and so it, it creates this whether it's whether it's true to real life or not is is not the, the question but what it does is it, it it creates a world in which there's more than one black person or there's more than just say two or three black people which in terms of and it's not just black folks it's it's Asians and Latinos and it's women and it's queer folks a lot of times our representation in in popular culture is reduced to this level of tokenism in which we're the only one in the room. And by default, not only are we the only one in the room, we're the only one in the neighborhood. And we're not only the only one in the neighborhood, we're the only one in the world. And that's the thing that black exploitation that was interesting about, not all of them, but a lot of them was that they existed in these worlds where they weren't the only black character. And that, that begins to change your whole, pers- your whole perception of the... Uh, that artificial reality that film creates. Now, sometimes people criticize black exploitation films because of stereotypes that appear in them. But in that context, are are stereotypes always a negative? Is there a way that stereotypes can be seen as good or positive? And I, I mean that in the sense of if a lot of these black exploitation films show characters who are involved in crime, but you're getting these films where you've got a large black cast and you've got characters that are driving the plot in ways that mainstream audiences haven't been seeing in the past. Is there some positive element to that, even if there are some stereotypes contained in those films? Sure. I mean, the, the, my, my answer to that is sure, of course. You know, I mean, watch, watch The Godfather or Godfather Part Two. Or go back to the 30s and 40s and watch any of those mm-hmm. those crime melodramas that starred whether it was Edward G. Robinson or Jimmy Cagney or George Raft, any of those guys. And all these movies are, are filled with every film is 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 film filled with uh, with stereotypes and archetypes. That's what we as audiences have come to understand and see. And so the question then becomes how how well is it portrayed? How, how well is that character developed? So a, a film that took a lot of heat when it came out and still continues to take a lot of heat is the movie Superfly, Gordon Parks Jr. directed and Ron O'Neill stars in, and it's about a, you know, a drug dealer. This dude is bad, and he ain't just fly. He's super fly, yeah, super fly. When it comes to women, they come to him, but it's still not enough. He wants a big score, a million in cash. Yeah, the big one. This is a chance, and I want to take it now before I have to kill somebody. And it's like, yeah, it's there's there's a certain stereotype to the fact that he that Ron O'Neill is playing a character who's a drug dealer, but. Those stereotypes are also what allow us to recognize these characters as we're watching the film. And then the question becomes is, well, 
how is that character developed throughout the course of the movie? What sort of growth and arc do they have? Do they do they come out on another side? And the problem is, and 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 I think you know this was a valid concern was that within the the black exploitation movies, the vast majority of the characters that we saw were some sort of criminal type characters. They were gangsters or they were pimps or they were drug dealers or whatever. They were vigilantes. But I would counter that that's what most movies are. There's there's not a lot of huge box office hits about doctors who who are looking for the cure for athlete's foot. If you, if you could make a movie like that, that was a big hit, we'd see a, a thousand other movies like that. But But people tend to go to the movies to escape and to sort of indulge, I think a lot of times, uh, the darker side of their persona. They want to see anti-heroes again, which is why, I mean, how many people consider Godfather and Godfather Part Two to be, you know, amongst the greatest American films of all time? When Michael Corleone's character, there's like, there's not much about him to like. The movie Goodfellas, there's no, there are no good people in Goodfellas. Nobody. They're all, like, morally reprehensible. Yet we love that movie. We love those characters. I, I, I watch that movie at least once a year. I've got it memorized. I think it's the same thing with black exploitation films. It's, it's just that, at the same time, there, there is some semblance of balance in, in, if you want to call it, white cinema. So, yeah, you get a movie like Goodfellas or the Godfather movies, but then you also get wholesome, more family entertainment. And, and they're especially during the 70s, there wasn't a lot of counter-programming to it. So you got the Mac or Willie Dynamite, but you didn't get a lot of films that weren't about, you know, sociopaths or urban dysfunction. I mean, that's it. That's every, every black movie. Most black movies are, are, are about urban dysfunction in some capacity. Tyler Perry's made a fortune off of it, and, and that's what all the hood films of the 90s were. And, and every nearly every black actor to be nominated for an Oscar or win an Oscar has won for playing a morally reprehensible character. That's the problem. Now, the black exploitation films were quite a range of films also. I want to play, uh, you provided me with some wonderful audio, so I want to make sure we play some uh, of these clips. But some of the films were obviously just a ripoff of white films and just slapping the word black somewhere in the title. And the, the one I wanted to play was the uh, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> oh, and that movie's terrible, too. Absolutely terrible. The fear of the year is here. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, a monster he could not control, have taken over his very soul. A screaming demon rages inside, turning him into Mr. Hyde, an unstoppable black superman. Super strong, supernatural, and super bad. So some of the films were obviously just, can we make money by changing the color of this film and, and, and adding black to the title. But there were also some really strong films that came out. What are some of the films that you'd want to highlight as kind of the best that black exploitation offered? Well, for sure, The Spook Who Sat by the Door is, is amazing. I think it's, it's like one of my favorite films of all time. The Spook Who Sat by the Door, the controversial best-selling novel now becomes a shocking screen reality. 
the story of the first black agent in the CIA. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. For five years, he was their token Negro. He kept his cool and let himself be used. And in return, they taught him how to spy, how to fight, and how to kill. For five years, he was the spook who sat by the door. And then, he turned the American dream into a nightmare. This is not about hate white folks. It's about love and freedom enough to die or kill for it if necessary. And totally misunderstood film and, again, pure brilliance. Uh, Across 110th Street's another film that I really, really, truly love. And then, you know, there's, there's some movies like that are just plain fun. Of course, I'm drawing a blank on all of them, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like Black Caesar is a great movie or The Mac is a great movie. When you've got nothing and you want everything, you've got to get to be The Mac. I mean, being rich and black means something, man. Don't you know that? The Mac, his business is pleasure. He sells the soft stuff. They're going to have to rewrite the Mac and Game book, baby, you know, because I'm going to be the new king. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the big moment we've all been waiting for. The Mac of the Year. Goldie! But I I think it's also interesting, too, because, like, you know, you take a movie like Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde or Dr. Black and Mr. White because it had a couple different titles. And it's, it's, it's a pretty terrible movie. And then you take a movie like Blackula. You shall pay. Black Prince, I curse you with my name. You shall be Blackula. Blackula, the Black Avenger, rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother, deadlier even than he. Blackula, he thirsts for your blood, he hungers for your soul, more horrifying than Dracula. And, and Blackula is an interesting film. I, I, I recorded, I was asked to record the audio commentary for the Blu-ray release a year or two back. And it was interesting because, you know, the film is, is full of all sorts of problems, not the least of which is just not the best screenplay, not the best story. But what was really interesting was I was watching it. The day we recorded the audio commentary was the day that officer Darren Wilson was acquitted in the killing of Mike Brown. It was, it was literally the day after that had happened. And the, the climax of Blackula, not to spoil it for anyone, but since the movie came out in 1972, Hey, you're behind the times. The climax of, of Blackula is the LAPD coming after Blackula and his, his bride, who his bride has done nothing, and he really hasn't done that much in terms of bad stuff. He's, he's not exactly the most evil of vampires. He's kind of benign by comparison to other screen vampires. But the, the police gunned down his unarmed girlfriend, and, and he goes berserk, and he's killing all these cops and and it it really was like very clear to me especially on this particular day that that what i was watching was this 1972 1971 it was a revenge fantasy and it was it was a revenge 
fantasy that was coming just a few years after essentially, you know, the Rots riots and the Philly riots and the Newark riots and all these things that had this, this very turmoil-filled time of the 1960s and going into the 1970s. And, and a lot of what we saw in these films was, was a manifestation in one form or another of the black fantasy for the need for justice, the need for revenge, right? And it's like, you compare that to today, and it's the things that we're feeding into all of the, the rage and the angst and the turmoil that, that defines the black existence in America in the early 1970s, we're still dealing with it today. We're still dealing with, when was the last time the, the, the police you know, gunned down an, an unarmed black person in America? Um, let's see, five, four, three, two, one. It probably happened just now. That's how regularly it's happening. Over a thousand last year. And what those films did back then was provide us with this sort of release that, that pop culture is supposed to give us. The problem is, is that society never reached a point where we actually got a release from it. We're still facing the police brutality. We're still mm-hmm. facing the inequities, the disparities, the poverty, the, 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 the existence of the American ghetto that existed in, in the 1970s still exists. The only difference now is that it has been moved. Gentrification has moved the ghettos from the inner city of America to what used to be the suburbs. We've all been displaced. It's happened in every city in the country. I've, I've, I've been all over this country in the last four or five years traveling for you know um, the work that I do with, a, with the writing, and I constantly see it. I constantly see these former black communities that have been transformed. It doesn't matter if it's Harlem in New York City or Oakland in California or, or, or wherever. It, it's happening all the time. And, and so what's amazing to me is those films spoke to a reality and they were in response to a reality that still exists. And that's, the, that's more disturbing to me than any of the stereotypes that were in those films. Mm-hmm. Well, you brought up the notion of, of revenge. How do you see Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained? Because that was, again, a, a revenge fantasy kind of film, although Jamie Foxx's character is much more isolated in terms of there's not as many black characters surrounding yeah. him. But how do you place that? Is that uh... Well, it's, it's interesting because... I actually really like Django Unchained. I know some people that didn't. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. And, I, and I've never met Tarantino, but I'd sit down and I would say this to his face. That movie is less of a revenge fantasy and more of an apology. That movie is Quentin Tarantino's idea of revenge, but his idea of revenge is actually an apology. Because, and again, not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Calvin Candy, in order for that to be a revenge movie, Jamie Foxx would have had to have killed yes. the true villain. Yeah. And he didn't. It was... It was um, Christoph, Christoph Waltz. Yep, Christoph Waltz. That's who did the killing. And, and what you saw in that, and I, and I remember watching it too, the first time I saw it, thinking, wait a minute. 
this is like this is not what this is about. This is about this is in a lot of ways it's the ultimate white liberal apology for all of the wrongs that have ever happened to black folks, you know, or something like that. And I love the movie, but but it, it really I get it. I get, you know, there's that scene right before um, King Schultz kills Calvin Candy, where you see that look on his face. And it's and, and I was like, oh, see, this is what Tarantino wants white people to feel. He wants them to go. Wow, we have been so bad. We have to clean up our own mess. And and so in that regard, the you know, the movie doesn't quite deliver what a lot of people seem to think it delivers. There's, there is a certain amount of revenge that, that Django gets, but he gets it on all the secondary characters. You know, he doesn't get it on the true villain, which, is that a flaw? I don't necessarily know if it's a flaw within the story. I, I, I still like the movie. I, I just rewatched it, like, the day before Hateful Eight came out, and was like, wow, I still really like this. But it's still there. It's mm-hmm. still, there's no escaping the fact that, that the true act of revenge that drives that, you know, that had to drive that movie, the character that represents the, the ultimate of what white supremacy and white entitlement is about, which was Leonardo DiCaprio's character, the hero of our movie doesn't actually kill that character. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I remember one of the things that impressed me uh, and this was because the lead was also female, is Pam Greer. So yep. I wanted to talk a little bit about Pam Greer. So let's play a, a trailer from um, one of her films. Let's, let's go with Coffee. They call her Coffee because if you jab her, she'll cream you. This is the end of your rotten life. Coffee. The baddest one-chick hit squad that ever hit town. All your friends are dead. Why kill them all? Coffee. She's got a body men would die for. And lately, a lot of them have. Coffee's black. Coffee's hot. And sometimes as sweet as sugar. I know what you want to, and you're gonna get it. Coffee. Always where the action is. A mean kind of super chick who don't take nothing off of nobody. You want me to crawl? You want to spit on me and make me crawl? See Coffee. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without a parent. Look out, Harlem. Here comes Coffee. The godmother of them all. All right. Pam Greer was great. I mean, she was this powerful female character who could kick ass and could make it on her own. What kind of an impact did she have on not just black exploitation, but I mean, it, she created this very strong image. She did. She created this, you know, this, this sort of kick-ass woman. Uh, you know, she played a, this, a vigilante character, two films back to back, um, Coffee, and then the the unofficial sequel to Coffee, which was Foxy Brown, which was originally supposed to be Coffee Part Two. Not sure why they didn't do it that way. Then she played a detective in Sheba Baby, a photojournalist in in Friday Foster. It's really interesting because I can see, you know, if if you were to place yourself within the the, the contextualize, contextualize yourself within the era in which those movies were made. They all came out between 73 and, like, 76. There's this 
empowerment aspect, and there's this woman who's who's taking um, taking control of her destiny, and she's killing her oppressors, and blah blah blah, all these amazing things. But at the same time, they're very much male fantasy yeah. films. You know, it's like um, how many times does Pam Greer get naked in one of her movies? I'm pretty sure there's like one movie where she's she's raped. Yes. Where like that's part of the story. Another one where she's like strung out on heroin, that's part of the story. And so within her empowerment, there's also this really twisted sense of victimization. This, this, and it's not even a twisted sense of victimization, it's just plain victimization that I think plays into a certain fantasy, this male fantasy of what a strong woman should be or, or what a sexy woman should be. And we saw that in a lot of other exploitation films that weren't necessarily black exploitation movies, you know, like, like Gator Bait with, with Claudia Jennings, you know, it, it, it's, it's always this, like this formulaic thing of like, well, it's a sexy woman and she's really strong, but we're going to have to show her naked. And at some point she's going to have to be sexually assaulted because that's, that's gotta be the thing that drives her. You know, and if it's not her being sexually assaulted, it's because her man was killed or because it's almost like there's this this set of rules, like there's three or four rules, which is in order for a woman to be a kick-ass hero, she has to endure one or more of these things. And suffering has to be involved, yes. Yeah, yeah, there has to be some sort of suffering. And in fact, all heroes go through some sort of suffering. They go through some sort of loss that usually, especially if it's a, a tale of revenge, but Whenever your lead character is a woman, it's almost like the rules are more steadfast. And and maybe narrow is the, like, yes. the rules are more narrow for them. A very narrow spectrum. It, you know, we're talking about films from the 1970s. And so I like to tell people, you know, I, I am a firm believer that you can't, we can't look at a movie like Foxy Brown through a 100% 2016 lens. We have to look at the film in some capacity, some context of what was going on in the time, what else was happening in the films, how women were being treated in, in, you know, in a much larger sense, what was the conversations that were going on, and not simply go, oh my God, this is a, a horribly problematic film by my 2016 sensibilities. Because, you know, my 2016 sensibilities are still clouded by the fact that I'm old, you know? <laughs> it's like, there are still some things that, like, when people talk about being offended by them, I'm like, well, what are you talking about? That's not offensive. That's just the way things are. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute. The way things are can be offensive. It can be problematic. It's just, I've been conditioned to accept it as being okay. and And that's when you begin to... You know, that's when the enlightenment begins. But again, like I, I, one of my problems I have with modern film criticism is like you have to understand what's going on, what was going on back then. If there's a movie that's made in, say, 1967 that has characters that are, you know, that are gay, like what was it like to be queer man in 1967 America? There's going to be a lot of homophobia involved. There's going to be a lot of oppression. There's going to be a lot of suppression. There's going to be a lot of hiding who you are. 
And, and if you watch a movie from that era and that stuff is in there and it bothers you, yeah, of course, it's, it's going to bother you, especially now and as things have changed. But this is also reflective of how things were, and, and we have to examine that. D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation, is the most appalling film, one of the most appalling films I've ever seen. But it's reflective of how much of America thought things were, how they thought history was, how they thought black people were, how they thought the Ku Klux Klan actually helped save the South in the wake of the Civil War. And, and as personally offensive as that is, and, as, and, and even culturally offensive as it is, we can't erase it, and nor should we. Because if we erase it, then, then we run the mistake of, of it happening again, of us, of us finding this, this sort of ideology acceptable. Well, and I think in the case of Pam Greer, you know, I was a teen, well, I was born in 1960. So in the 70s, when I was watching those Pam Greer films, I was probably like about 13 or through, you know, junior high or high school. And although looking back on them now, I find certain elements of them problematic. The yeah. thing that lingers, though, is what a strong image she created despite those things. And, like, that's the, the thing that you that I remember from them. And also, you just weren't seeing characters like that. Even with some of the cliches that she had to deal with, you still weren't seeing that many women be able to, instead of having some man rescue her, that she yeah. was going to get the gun and get her revenge and put things right. And we're and here's the sad thing: we're still not seeing it. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, is like for all the all the all the problematic things that we could pick apart about Coffee or Foxy Brown or any of these other movies, and there's a list. There's certainly a list, mm -hmm. and and there's some people that I would tell them, yeah, don't watch this movie. It's just it's it ain't gonna work for you, right? Mm -hmm. But in 2015, how many movies did we see where the the lead hero, the lead protagonist of the film, was a kick-ass woman. Other than, other than Star Wars, you know, and that was, to a large extent, an ensemble cast, just like Avengers Age of Ultron was an ensemble cast, mm -hmm. just like Batman versus Superman, you know, Wonder Woman is going to be part of a, a trifecta of characters. We are not seeing the, what is comparable to Foxy Brown or Coffee right now in film. And, and even, even if we removed all the problematic aspects, we're not seeing it. Who are some of the other stars that stood out for you? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, like, a lot of supporting actors. There, there's a guy, Thalmas Rasulala, who is, for the most part, was a, a supporting actor. But he had, he had a lead in a couple movies. And Jim Kelly will always be a personal <laughs> favorite of mine, even though in terms of his acting range, he was somewhat limited. You first saw him in Into the Dragon. Now see him as he's never been seen before. Jim Kelly is Black Belt Jones. <laughs> see him train his own army of girl high jumpers to help penetrate the hideaway of one of the mob's biggest bosses. See him retrieve 25 grand from the mob's own vault, guarded by the toughest hoods in the underworld. Like Paul Winfield, who is, is always thought of as being really serious, was in a movie called Gordon's War. Gordon's War is one of my personal favorites. Yafet Koto did some great stuff, mm -hmm. one of those being across 110th Street, and he was, he was the villain in Truck Turner, and Truck Turner with Isaac Hayes is, like, absolutely brilliant to me. You know, like, like to me, Truck Turner is everything that's great about an exploitation movie. 
just offensive enough and it's just politically incorrect enough and there's just enough action and and sex and violence and it's just like i watch it and it's like uh, you know like like i'm a cat getting its tummy rubbed i'm just purring and sort of like oh this is this is exploitation perfection with truck turner the, you know, the, the key thing, you know, an actor like Ron O'Neill in Superfly giving what could probably be one of the best performances of his life. And at the same time, you know, you kind of realize, I think this guy was probably capable of a lot more than this. And so I, I see it as a lot of missed opportunities, too. I see a guy like Calvin Lockhart in a movie like Melinda. Yeah, you know, it was kind of a missed opportunity. Everyone talks about Idris Elba being the new James Bond. And I'm like, Calvin Lockhart should have been the new James Bond in 73. They got, instead mm-hmm. of getting Roger Moore for Live and Let Die, they should have gotten Calvin Lockhart. He could have been the first black James Bond, and it would have been perfect. And, and so I see a lot of that, and that's, that's sort of where I've moved on to in terms of watching these movies. Cause I've seen so many of them that now I look at them, and I, and I sort of think about, well, you know, what would have happened if the movies didn't die off and some of these actors were allowed to to grow and flourish? Because you look at a, a, an actor like Pacino, Al Pacino, who got, you know, really the Godfather movies were his big break. He'd done a few things before that. But, you know, look at where Al Pacino went throughout the 70s and the 80s and even where he is now. Um, Robert De Niro, that's another one. Harvey Keitel, that's another one. And, of course, keep in mind, we're talking about men. Because women, you know, we know all the problems that happen with women's careers. But in terms of leading male actors, white actors, you look at where their careers went, and then you look at the, their black counterparts, and you're like, like they're all on the where are they now list. You, you never saw anybody get to either have a brilliant career or to have some sort of amazing comeback. This never happened for anybody. Well, and there were also some directors that I really wish had gone on to do more stuff. I mean, one of my favorite films is Cotton Comes to Harlem. Yep. And that was directed by an actor, Ossie Davis, who is very well respected as an actor, but only made a few films. But I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, he, he also directed Gordon's War, which is, I mentioned earlier, Paul mm-hmm. Winfield's in that. And to me, that's like one of those sort of underrated classics. It's also something that's like, in terms of exploitation films, it's got it all. It's like, it's grim and dirty, and it just looks like, it, it, it's as disgusting as New York City was in 1973. And, and, and I just, I love that movie. It's interesting because Ossie Davis did another movie called Count Anet Cusini, which was filmed largely in Africa, and it was about a revolution in an unnamed African nation. and. It's never been released on home video. I think the only existing print is at the UCLA Film Archive, which is where I saw it. There you see his true limitations as a director. Mm-hmm. It was such a low-budget film, and it was so disappointing. And you're like, oh, you know, this... Like, he knows how to get good performances out of actors, but he hadn't quite figured out how to make a movie with no money. And, and you know, and again, I love Cotton Comes to Harlem. I love Gordon's War, and before that, he had done like Pearly Victorious, which was a, a really interesting take on a play that I think he may have written as well. Just as it is with actors and actresses, 
there's directors. It's like, whatever happened to them? Like, like none of them really went on to do much of anything after the seventies. Michael Schultz being the one exception to the rule. Michael Schultz directed Car Wash and Greased Lightning. Some of the later movies are directed Cooley High in 75 and arguably probably the most prolific black actor or black director in the history of, of American cinema. And most people are like, what, huh? What, who is he? What has he done? But in the eighties, he went on to direct like movies like the last dragon and crush groove and tons of TV shows and, and you name it. And, um, just a really smart, interesting guy. Now I want to talk a little bit about some of the characters that came out of this. There are films like shaft where the Shaft character definitely crossed over, I think, to more mainstream audiences. The mob wanted Harlem back. They got Shaft. John Shaft, a big, bad black private eye, in the middle of a mess, dealing with Harlem's boss, the Fuzz, the Moth, and the Fox or two. Shaft's his name. Can you dig it? Shaft's his game. Some dig it. Shaft. Some don't. Shaft, this year's toughest flick. You say this cat is a bad mother. Shut your mouth. I'm talking about Shaft. Then we can dig it. Introducing Richard Roundtree as Shaft, directed by Gordon Parks. Music by the hot buttered soul man, Isaac Hayes. Shaft. In color from MGM, rated R. If you want to see Shaft, Ask your mama. But then you have other characters like the Dolomite character, who I don't yep. think quite did. So what are some of the ones that you think did cross over and some of the ones that maybe should have or you would have liked to have seen? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. I think the ones that cross over the most, they're, they're, it's almost like these, these bizarre archetypes of these characters that crossed over. And then we saw certain examples of them in like a movie like I'm going to get you sucker, right? So you had the, 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 the Kung Fu slash karate fighter that was sort of embodied by Jim Kelly in movies like Black Belt Jones or Three the Hard Way. And then Jim Brown. Jim Brown is black gun. He has everything a woman needs. And everything the man wants. The man wants the word from you. Then he's out of luck. Black gun. So it's almost like the actors themselves are almost indistinguishable from the roles that they played. And that's what's sort of iconic. Shaft, of, of course, is a super iconic character. And then Pam Greer, you know, Foxy Brown or Coffee, they're sort of iconic characters. But it, it's almost like people recognize the character without even necessarily knowing what it is. So they see, like, Pam Greer with a shotgun and a big afro and maybe, you know, just a bra or something like that or a bikini top. And it's like, oh, I know what that is. But then they don't necessarily really know what that is. Just as like in the, in, the, in the 30s and 40s, there were actors who sort of embodied specific types of roles, whether it was Cagney or Robinson or Bogart. Fred Williamson embodied a certain type of role versus Jim Brown. Um, you know, Jim Brown is like super serious, never cracks a smile, beats the hell out of everybody. Fred Williamson is like, he's got that sly grins, you know, smoking a cigar. Then he beats the hell out of everybody. And then he goes to bed with the woman. Jim Kelly just 
you know, hardly says a word, and he just uses his karate skills to beat everybody up. And then you have Rudy Ray Moore, who did a handful of films like Dolomite and The Human Tornado. Watch out, mister. Here comes the twister. This is Rudy Ray Moore. Yes, I'm the Human Tornado. I chain down thunder and handcuff lightning. I'm so damn strong, it's sometimes frightening. I grabbed a star traveling a million miles a minute and slowed it down to the state speed limit. And Rudy sort of defies explanation. I know he doesn't defy explanation. I should rephrase that. He just requires a level of explanation that most people absolutely don't get because he is in my view, the most misunderstood person from that era. And, and, and because of how much he's misunderstood, he doesn't get a level of respect that he deserves. And, and so it becomes this, I'm, I'm constantly defending Rudy. And I, I was fortunate enough to m- meet him, ah, oh my God, it's been 20 years. I met him 20 years ago, 1996. And I, last time I'd seen him was probably less than a year before he died, which was, you know, for life me, I can't, I think it was around 2008 or 2009 that he passed away. And Rudy Ray Moore was just such an interesting person, but he was actually, I think the best way to describe it is, is he was sort of a, a conduit for multiple eras of what black entertainment has been. And he, he came from the old Chitlin circuit era of the segregated days where, you know, Black comedians could not perform in front of white audiences or in clubs with white people or things like that, and and moved his way up and 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 found some success on the ultimate fringes of like it wasn't even the fringes of the mainstream; it was the fringes of the fringes of the mainstream. And never given enough credit for being as smart as he was. And and I think that I was interviewed recently because someone's writing a biography about him. And I think that part of the reason he's not given credit for being as smart as he was, because he was like from Arkansas or Alabama or somewhere like that. And he, he just had a way, a country way of talking. If you didn't pay close attention to him, he, he you know, we say, oh, you know, he sounds too country. That was Rudy's problem. He sounded really country a lot of the times, and he wasn't. It just, it wasn't like he was country and bumpkin. He just had a very Southern way of expressing himself. And, uh, yeah, and I just, I get, I always get irritated when people, like, you know, oh, he was, he had no talent, or he was this or that, and it's just like, it is what it is. When, if you watch a movie like Dolomite, you see the, the, the sound man, you see the boom mic in every single shot. Or, or not every single shot, that's an exaggeration, but you see it in a lot of the shots, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody talks about, oh, Dolomite's such a terrible movie. You can see the boom mic in all these shots. What nobody understands is that when the Dolomite movies were transferred to home video for the first time, they were transferred with the wrong aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. And so they were, uh, if I remember correctly, it was a 4-3 ratio, which didn't crop it the way it was supposed to be cropped when you would have seen it in theaters. And that's why you see the boom mic. You're going to see the boom mic in any movie that isn't transferred with the proper aspect ratio. And yet that's part of like this running joke of what black exploitation movies are is that, Oh, you could always see the boom mic in these movies. 
Yeah, it's because when they transfer them to home video, they didn't transfer them properly. It's that simple. But your average film critic or your average film goer, and, and you know, I, I'm rude for saying this, they don't know these things. They're, they, they, I'm not going to say they're not smart enough to know, but they don't understand how, you know, 35 millimeter films were transferred to video. And so they assume, oh, this was, uh, you know, piss poor, you know, inept production values on the film part. No, it was, it was inept transferring <laughs> to home video. It's, it's just, it's amazing to me. Um, I wanted to mention briefly another film that I liked, which is kind of on the fringes of black exploitation, it, it, only in the sense that I think it was a little more maybe serious, which was yeah. um, Melvin Van Peebles' Watermelon Man, which is a really interesting and odd film that hardly ever gets played. What happened? If I didn't know you myself, I'm I'd... black. i become black. You ask anyone on the street, they'll say, that man? He's black. No. Mm -hmm, sure, he's black. Get a hold of yourself. <laughs> Yowza. I'm going to get a hold of myself. Yowza, boss. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> this could work to both our advantages. <laughs> boss, have he big sense of yeah, humor. Stop that foolish vaudeville routine and listen to me a minute. Look, I don't care what color you are. You are an intelligent, educated man. And damn it, Gerber, there is a whole market out there that has never even been approached by our company because we have never had a Negro salesman. Why, you can make yourself a fortune. That Negro insurance market is virtually untapped. Oh, that's one of the, that's one of the greatest films of all time. I mean, like, that is... It just doesn't get my, played very often, though. No, it's not. And it's not talked about. And it's really interesting because when people talk about Melvin Van Peebles, they always talk about sweet, sweet mm -hmm. back revenge and how important that is. And again, this comes down to historical context and people not understanding history of film. Like, most people don't get that Watermelon Man was made be made and released before Sweet Sweetback came out. It was it was a studio picture that he had done and it was based on the strength of that that he was able to raise the money to do Sweet Sweetback's Revenge or Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, excuse me. But Watermelon Man is brilliant. I think it's like one of the funniest movies I've ever seen and and also really, really poignant. And 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 there's this it's odd because there's this tragedy to it, but there's actually nothing tragic about it. It's about this, you know, it's about a white guy who wakes up one morning and he's black and, and how that ruins his life. But in the end, it's also about how he's reborn and how he learns to cope with it. Mm -hmm. I, I find it endlessly fascinating. It's, I'm not a person who believes in doing remakes for the most part, but I would, I would love to do a remake of that movie. And I think it would be more it could potentially be more poignant now in 2016 than it was in 1970 when it first came out. Mm -hmm. And Godfrey Cambridge is magnificent. Oh, he's brilliant. Godfrey Cambridge is so amazing in that movie. And he's, he's in another movie. It's a smaller part. There's a movie from the like 67, I think called the president's analyst starring James Coburn, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. where, where he's, a, um, he plays essentially a CIA agent. He's in like he's not in the whole movie, but he's in a good chunk of it, and he's so brilliant in that. He's so brilliant in Cotton Comes to Harlem, a truly amazing performer who you know died unfortunately pretty young. And and my grandfather actually knew Godfrey Cambridge. I, I my my grandparents migrated from the South 
in Virginia up to New England, to Connecticut, and they knew Godfrey Cambridge because he lived the next town over from them in Connecticut. And uh, my grandfather tells stories about how the Klan came and burned a cross on Godfrey Cambridge's front yard to get him to leave um, the neighborhood that he had moved into. And, and, and I think about that when I think about how he died young and, and, and the things that a lot of these actors and performers, and not just actors and performers, but people like my grandparents went through as they tried to pave the way to, to make this country a better place for, for all of us. And, and it's also one of the reasons why I'm slow to dismiss so many of these movies, even the worst. You know, Blackenstein is one of the worst movies you're ever going to see in your life. Um, and, and, but at the same time, it's part of something that's much bigger than, you know, the pile of garbage that it is. Mm-hmm. Another film I wanted to mention because there's going to be a screening here in San Diego. And I think I read an article of yours where you, you had a hard time fitting it exactly into black exploitation is Bill Gunn's uh, Ganja and Hess. But we're going to be showing that here in San Diego. And I was wondering if you wanted a comment on that. You know, that's one of those movies that I, I've seen that movie so many times and I, I'm still like, huh, I have no idea what this movie's really about. <laughs> it's, it is so surreal, but it's also a brilliant film. It's a beautiful film. It has performances by two incredibly, three com- completely underrated performers, one being Dwayne Jones, Marlene Clark, and then Bill Gunn himself. And, and I think that, you know, you talk about an artist being ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. Bill Gunn was so ahead of his time as a writer and a filmmaker that I think we're just now starting to really comprehend how brilliant he was. He, he, he also wrote the screenplay to Hal Ashby's first directorial effort. Hal Ashby, of course, did Harold and Maude and, and um, some of the more classic films of the 70s. But the first film he directed was The Landlord, which Bill Gunn wrote which is an amazing examination of white privilege and gentrification and the impact that well-meaning yet clueless white people can have on a community of color. And Ganja and Hess is just this incredible examination of black sexuality, you know, supernatural elements and, and horror and all of these things that are in some ways very... Um, recognizable tropes and conventions, but given a perspective that few other filmmakers have ever done. So Gaj and Hess is one of the true, few truly black films out there. Um, and, and again, I, I watch it and I'm always like, huh, what is, I, I actually get it. It's not like I, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to comprehend what's going on. It's just, it's, it ain't lowbrow. That's all I can say. You know, people talk about it being a vampire movie. There ain't nothing lowbrow about Ganja and Hess. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. I've never seen it on the big screen, so that's going to be fun. Yeah, I, and, I, and you know, and the, the funny thing is there's like three or four versions of that movie because it, it's been cut, so, it's been cut so many times. It was released once under the title of The Blood Couple, and then there was another one called The Black Vampire, and and I had probably seen all of those before I'd seen them, seen the movie uncut. And those movies make no sense. 
they're edited really poorly. So by the time I finally saw Ganjin Hess, I was like, oh, wait a minute, this is actually a work of art versus... And there's just an interesting story. The story of how that movie got made is so interesting because it was essentially Bill Gunn lying to the, the financiers the whole time. Well, yeah, yeah, making... He was essentially telling them that he was making like Blackula, but instead he was making some, you know, what I think is a, is a truly important piece of art. Well... As my last question, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you talk about black exploitation 2.0. So do you want to tell me what that, how you define that? It's, it's funny. I, 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 I wrote that a little over a year ago, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it, what it entails. But I, I do know that it, it's more than just film, and it's more than just television, and it's more than just whatever you shoot on YouTube. It's music and it's literature and it's comic books and it's it is about empowerment. It's it's about regaining our humanity because the black experience in America has been an exercise in dehumanization and and an attempt to reassert our humanity. That dehumanization is what allowed for slavery and it's what allows for the continued second class or third class treatment that black people have. So in terms of popular culture, what black exploitation was originally was about this sort of sense of empowerment that that um, these films gave us, these manifestations of our revenge fantasies, if you will, or, or whatever fantasies of empowerment. And so black exploitation 2.0 is is definitely there's aspects of that too. It's about this manifestation of of an aesthetic that gives us stories that we would like to see um, in, in which we are the heroes, in which we are not relegated to sidekicks or relegated to absolute sheer invisibility. That's first and foremost. But I think what it also means is, is that Blaxploitation 2.0 has to be about the audience taking responsibility for understanding the power that they have as consumers it is it's it's about a generation of critics and historians coming along who understand what it is that's being done so again i go back to the early days of hip hop and writers like jeff chang or nelson george or greg tate who understood what was going on and wrote about it in such a way so that you know there's a reason why hip hop has endured as long as it has and, and has evolved and has changed sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But there's, what we need is, uh, there's, there's a movement, it's, it's primarily in comics and video games, stuff like that. They, they call themselves blurds for black nerds or bleaks for black geeks, but it's this black nerd movement that, that I find incredibly fascinating. And what I, part of what I, I see all the potential that is there, but then I also see them you know, I I go to these countless websites and I see all these Twitter accounts and, you know, and they're they're talking about the same things that what we I guess what we could call mainstream or or dominant culture um, outlets are talking about. So they're they're talking about what Marvel Comics is doing, what DC Comics is doing. They're talking about the Hunger Games. They're talking about Harry Potter. They're talking about all the stuff they're they're claiming they want more diversity, they're claiming they want more representation, they're claiming they want this, that, and the other, 
and yet they're doing the exact same things that the um, that again what what I would define as the uh, the dominant culture champions rallies around, and they're not getting behind nearly enough independent creators that are doing things that are delivering exactly what it is they say they want, but yet it's not, you know, there's, there's a whole group of black nerds out there that want Batman to be black and the, or James Bond to be black. And the reality is, is that Warner Brothers, who owns DC, is never going to cast a black man as, as, as Batman. And there's very slim chance and probably none at all that a black actor will be cast as James Bond, right? But at the same time, there are, there's not as many films as there could be, but there's books out there and there's comics out there and there are, there, you know, and somewhere there's films out there that are, that are delivering that, but it's not a black James Bond. It's, it's Tyrone Jackson, man of action, you know, and, and yet the, the black nerd movement isn't necessarily embracing that stuff the way it needs to. It's not fostering it. And, and if black exploitation 2.0 is going to amount to more than what that first iteration of it was, there has to be responsibility. Vincent Canby is the one who reviewed all the, all those black exploitation films for whatever the village voice of the New York times. And clearly he didn't get it. Um, he didn't get most of them. And that's why they got the negative reviews that they did. Yet the audiences still flock to it, and word of mouth still flock to it, and and we need more of that. We need we as as black folks, and it's not just black folks. When I say that, when I use the term black folks or whatever, it's really a fill in the blank because it's it's anybody, it's any group that is underrepresented, and so that includes women, and that includes people with disabilities, and that includes transgendered people, the list goes on. It, 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 the only people that aren't included in that list are, you know, white heterosexual men, okay? <laughs> because, because they got to lock on everything. In order for black exploitation 2.0 to amount to something, it, it means that not only are there going to have to be creators, there's going to have to be critics, and there's going to have to be consumers, and there's going to have to be retailers, and there's going to have to be all of it, everything that makes America what it is, we have to find a way to to support that. We we have to create our own, uh, if necessary, our own economy. And 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 it goes back to the most most prolific time for black films in the history of the American film industry was from the 1920s to the 1950s when black people weren't allowed, by and large, to go to the movies with white people. And so there was an entire separate industry of black films that sustained itself for decades. And then the moment integration became the norm in Hollywood, black audiences stopped going to see the movies of a filmmaker like Oscar Michaud or Spencer Williams. They stopped going to see what at the time were called black cast films. And they instead opted for what would become known as the integration films. And so those films died off. The black cast films died off. Just like, you know, the moment um, black people were allowed to sit at the lunch counter in in southern states, 
all of the the black owned diners went out of business and 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 that was the price we paid for integration and and the key is is well we're, we're integrated now but we're still we don't have any equity and 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 if we want to have some both equality and some equity we're going to have to create it for ourselves that's what i keep talking about and that's when people start looking at me like oh the, the, he's uppity, you know. This guy is more than just a guy who writes comic books or or talks about movies. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and thanks for making the time amongst all your many projects. Uh, if people are looking for ways to find you, where can they find you, and where can they get information about your books and things? Um, I've got a I've got a couple different websites that I barely maintain. Uh, the the David Walker site, which is all one word, the David Walker site dot com, is sort of a jumping off portal that leads to everything. It's got like a link to my Amazon author page or my IMDb page. Um, the the blog that I update with any degree of regularity, whatever that means, is uh, badassmofo dot com, which is b a d a z z m o f o dot com. Um, sometimes when I'm inspired. I update it regularly, and then I will go months without updating it. Since it's Black History Month, I'm updating it every day with some sort of historical lesson. Um, but yeah, it's uh, for the most part, I'm too busy <laughs> to, to update myself, uh, my those things. And then I'm on Twitter at David Walker twelve zero one, which I'm always talking about what I'm doing, and then posting links to everything from old funkadelic songs to you know, reports on, you know, how Flint, Michigan has been poisoned. and But we don't want to get started on that one, do we? No, that's a whole other show. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for speaking with me. All right. Thank you. Take care. I want to remind people in San Diego that you will have a rare opportunity to see the director's cut of Ganja and Hess on the big screen at the Museum of Photographic Arts on February 20th at 5 p.m. It's being presented by Miguel Rodriguez and the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. It's part of a celebration of women in horror and black history. So he will also be screening American Psycho. So remember to mark that on your calendar. And thank you for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. And let's go out with a trailer for one of my favorite black exploitation films, and that's Cotton Comes to Harlem. Introducing two cops only a mother could love. Meet Coffin Ed Johnson and Gravedigger Jones, two of New York's finest. Two cops who take charge when an $87,000 bale of cotton comes to Harlem. Tell me something, will you? What's the bale of cotton doing in Harlem? A bale of cotton? Bale. Now what would a bale of cotton be doing in Harlem? Cotton comes to Harlem. It's cops and robbers with a shade of difference. See any cotton around here lately? A bale of cotton, sure. Where is it now? Did you turn Japanese? Huh? Wait, come on, you know the position. Come on. Damn it. Another fine mess you got us into. I got us into. Shut up and shoot. Godfrey Cambridge is Gravedigger Jones. Raymond St. Jock is Coffin Ed Johnson. Calvin Lockhart. Well, if it ain't King Kong and Frankenstein. Hey, what kind of talk is that, soul brother? 
Don't you know that black is beautiful? They put a personal touch on everything they handle. You have to play with that thing. I'm insecure, Captain. They're big, they're cool, they're beautiful. Where is that bale of cotton? There ain't no such thing as a bale of cotton in Harlem. Is that black enough for you? I finally found that bale of cotton. One thing's for sure, it ain't drugstore cotton. This is genuine Mississippi cotton. Don't you know it's cotton from the Harlem? Coffin Ed Johnson and Gravedigger Jones, two cops only a mother could love.